we are picking up now with the story of Joshua. Generally, we work through pieces of Scripture verse by verse. Um, we have, in the past couple of sermon series, has been in topical land, which generally in January and February, I do something topical about, um, usually around the idea of uh, some sort of discipline or uh, uh, from a book, and that's what we did the last couple of weeks uh, from the Beautiful Resistance book. Um, and then we had Christmas before that, and then before that, uh, we had our fall series. So it kind of feels like we haven't done verse by verse for a while, um, not since we were in Acts, basically. And so we're going back into Joshua. This is going to be many, many weeks, probably 10, 12 weeks. Uh, we will be taking two weeks off for Good Friday, or not Good Friday, for, uh, for Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. <laughs> I, went, I went to college, okay? <laughs> Um, Palm Sunday and Easter, we'll take those two weeks off and I'll just do something connected to Easter. And then we'll be back in Joshua working through. If you haven't been around the last couple of years, we've kind of worked through a lot of the patriarchies, the patriarchal guys in the Bible. That sounds, we're supposed to end the patriarchy or something. I'm not sure about that. So maybe I'll not call them the patriarchs, but basically the founders of the faith. Um, And we work through uh, stories of Jacob, Jacob, of, well, let's see, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and then into Moses, and we did Exodus. So those, we've basically gotten through most of them from just when Abraham uh, ends, and then all the way to Joshua, and now we're picking up the story again with Joshua. Um, We didn't start with Abraham. One day I'll go back and do Abraham. It's kind of even more complex than the other ones, Um, so that one's kind of on the shelf. For a while, we did a lot of, of Genesis. So we've almost done most of Gen- Genesis through Joshua. Um, so now we're basically picking up the story where we left off. And to start, I, we're obviously going to be in Joshua chapter 1 to, to begin today. But I need to give you like the background and context of how we got to Joshua chapter 1. And I'm going to do this basically fire hose style. Okay? I need you to, like, to lock in. Get your note, notes ready, because uh, we're going to go through basically first five books of the Bible in about eight minutes, okay? So just kind of stick here with me. And I'm going to focus on the faith coming together or being transitioned from one person to another, because that's really how the beginning part of the Bible lays it out. It goes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. It's a faithful relationship that God has with people, really, is what we see kind of developing and Joshua is the next person in line after Moses. So I'm going to get you from Adam to, to Moses. If you're following along, we have great notes in the app. If you want to pull up the, today's thing, it's got all the verses and all the stuff that we're going to talk about here for the next couple of minutes, all listed in order, and you can follow along there if you want, or you can just follow along on screen. So we know that God begins by creating everything and calling it good. He basically looks at his creation and says, this is good. He creates Adam and Eve to rule over, to have uh, dominion over his creation. And they start in the garden with God in relationship, and everything is idyllic. right? We talk about heaven being something like a new garden experience, where we're now in relationship with God, and there isn't anything between us. There's no enmity between us and God. There's no sin that's in the way. It, it, it hadn't existed yet, and Adam and Eve are in this perfect place with God. And it says... Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And we know they basically create this problem of sin by deciding to do what God has told them not to do. But what's amazing about that verse is the idea that during the cool of the day every day, God would come down to the garden and walk alongside Adam and Eve and check in. Like, hey, you're the foreman of this garden. Tell me what's going on. What did you do today to take care of my creation? That was his job. And they had a relationship. And God would be spending time walking among Adam and Eve every single day. And I don't know what that looked like, you know, if it was like giant feet, you know, like part of my brain thinks that, whether it was a physical manifestation of God, what that looked like. Was it, was it a picture of, of Jesus, somebody that looked like Jesus that was there having a conversation with them? Was it spirit? And they were able to somehow connect in a different way in the garden without sin. I don't know, but all of those thoughts are really cool, okay? And Adam has this relationship with God, but things go awry because sin enters the equation. You're going to see there's a couple of things that connect all of these, these original um, people that had a relationship with God, and uh, sin is definitely one of the things that connects them all, because sin is something that is part of every human's life. We all at some point choose to be selfish, choose our own way, choose not to follow God, and we bring sin into existence, into our lives, into the lives of the people around us. It's something we're born into, that we decide to do. All of us would ruin the garden just like Adam and Eve did. Even though Adam and Eve ruined the garden for us, right? we would all do the same thing for everyone else. That's just the way it is. We're an imperfect church for imperfect people. We understand that no one's perfect. We don't expect it. Nobody has qualified for perfection except for Jesus. That's it. So all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, every single one. And Adam and Eve bring sin into the picture. They mess up their relationship. God then kills an animal and makes skins for them, sends them out of the garden. Um, he curses the ground and makes some things more difficult for them as a way to sort of wake them up to what's gone on in their lives, so hopefully to wake them up to the sin that they've had. And, uh, but in the midst of that process of him kicking out Adam and Eve into the sort of out of the garden, there is the first picture of what the gospel looks like. And we call this, if you're a real nerd, you can look it up, the proto-evangelium. Basically, it's Genesis 3.15. It says, and this is God talking to Adam and Eve as he's sending them away. And he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's talking to the snake and basically saying there's going to be this enmity between your offspring and this evil offspring, and you're going to crush them. It's a picture of what the gospel will eventually do through the person of Jesus. The first time we see God's plan for redemption in the storyline. And it's all throughout here. That's the other thing you're going to see that connects all these people, is that, God, there's a plan for redemption. There's a peace. There's a picture. There's, a, there's something that shows us redemption in all these stories. All right, we're going to kick it into high gear here. Noah is the next person who comes and stands among his generation and stands out as someone who wants to follow God. Um, and it's funny to me that we give our kids the little tyke's ark i mean we did it too they play within the bathtub hey here have fun with this it was the destruction of all of humanity god judging the world and saying this is way off course from what i intended for this to be and now i have to step in and i have to judge the entire world the the ark should bring us to a place of uh of tears and it brings it's something we play with as children 
Uh, we've definitely got something mixed up in this story. But basically, God is saying, hey, all of humanity is off course, and they're going to be judged. And now Noah is going to be the person who carries it on, because Noah stands out among his generation. Here's what it says, Genesis 6, 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Imagine if, at the end of your life, that's how your life gets summed up in a sentence. That this is somebody who walked faithfully with God. Goes from Noah to Abraham. Uh, Abraham finds himself living amongst a pagan family, uh, and God calls him out from the situation he's in, calls him to a place. He doesn't tell him where to go. He just says, go. I'm going to show you where to go. I want you to come. Um, and Abraham basically decides to follow God with very limited information and is brought out into the land of Canaan, and he lives as a someone in, you know, he lives in tents. He, he basically is a nomad living in the land that God has called him to. And God covenants with Abraham, and Abraham was bold enough to go and to be obedient, and God blessed, blessed him miraculously with a son at an impossibly old age. And there's some, go, there's some back and forth between Abraham and his wife and God about this whole situation, and it gets to a point where it seems impossible that he could have a son, that this son would be a miraculous son who would fulfill the covenant that God has made with him. And here's what it says, Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant between you and you will greatly increase in numbers. And Abraham fell face down. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. We're going to pick that up in Joshua and they're going to go into this land that God had promised them. And then it says, Abraham fell face down and laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And the answer was yes to both of those. And God fulfilled his covenant at least by giving Abraham a son where the promise was going to be fulfilled in. And Abraham obviously wasn't perfect. He tried to fulfill the covenant for God a couple different times. Uh, and God had to step in and correct him and say, Let me do the work. Let me do what I'm going to do. And he had this miracle son, Isaac. And so it passes from Abraham to Isaac. And Isaac was kind of a hot mess. If you're in a family that's a hot mess, Isaac and Jacob, they're your guys. They're definitely guys who don't exactly understand uh, what they should be doing. They bring into the picture this concept of favoritism, which we see through different generations, where they start to favorite one child over the other. Um, and Isaac begins to... Uh, to make favorite Esau, and then Jacob is actually the one who's going to kind of steal the birthright and kind of have the birthright go through him. And so Isaac is kind of a hot mess in that regard where he's sort of saying, hey, I have my favorite and mom has her favorite, and this family's going to be in trouble here where brothers are going to try to kill each other over this birthright, and it's going to get really messy. And you think like, yeah, that's like my Thanksgiving every year with my family. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and here's what it says about Isaac. And the cool thing about Isaac is 
Isaac's moment where you see his faith in, um, you see his faith shown is actually when he is the sub-character in the story. It's actually Abraham's moment when he's going to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice where you see Isaac's faith in both Abraham and God by not, by not questioning, by not fighting, by not like going against what his father is telling him to do, by having faith in God who has promised to bring the, the covenant through him. And here's what it says, Genesis 22. Abraham looked up and there was a thicket and he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in, instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on this mountain, the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make you your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and throughout and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Okay, we're halfway done. Are you hanging in there? Everybody hanging in there? All right, it goes from Isaac to Jacob, not to Esau, to Jacob. That's a whole conversation about what happens between them. It's, uh, it's you know, we're getting into the Jerry Springer section. Uh, some people are like, what's Jerry Springer? Okay, it's generational. It's a problem. Uh, and we're going to get to the section where you are not the father. You are the father. Um, so Jacob... Um, escapes from his brother and gets taken advantage of by his uncle. I mean, I'm telling you, this is like, this is the, the midday TV section of the, of the story here, right? He, he gets taken advantage of by his, uh, by his uncle. He falls in love with uh, this beautiful woman named Rachel. And it says that her uh, sister, Leah, is older than her. And it says, Rachel is beautiful, Leah has, and the word that translates like exactly is she has like weak eyes, could translate to she's kind of plain. Um, and so Jacob's like, hey, want to marry Rachel? One of the most romantic verses in all the Bible, right? It says like Laban tells Jacob, hey, you can have Rachel, but you got to work for me for seven years. It says seven years went by like a day because he was just so in love with Rachel, right? And just so pumped to be able to marry her. Has the wedding. It's unbelievable. He's so pumped. It's been waiting for seven years to, and it says like they, you know, that night they go to consummate the marriage and Laban sneaks Leah into the tent. And I don't know if there was like maybe too much to drink or like it must've been really dark. This is part of the desert where there's no lights, I guess, at nighttime or whatever happens. Somehow they consummate the marriage. Leah consummates the marriage with Jacob. And one of the funniest verses in all of the Bible, it says, and then Jacob woke up the next day and behold, Leah. <laughs> so he gets deceived by his deceiver uncle uh, and then ends up basically uh, marrying these two sisters. And it sparks this kind of like housewives of Canaan kind of situation, right? <laughs> Where basically they're challenging each other to see who can produce more male offspring uh, for Jacob, and there gets to be this little like offspring war where it's like, okay, Rachel uh, or Leah has one, and then Rachel gets her handmaid involved, and Leah gets her handmaid involved. There's four women having sons now for for Jacob, and finally Rachel has Joseph, and Joseph is the favorite because this is the wife that that Jacob loves. This is a, a hot mess family, and. There are times in the Bible where it describes uh, something that we should, um, we should be wanting to emulate. This is not one of them. 
this describes a situation, doesn't describe to us what a Christian marriage should look like. In fact, there's hardly any Christian marriages in all of Scripture. Show me the best one. I'm not sure what it is. That actually honor God in a way that we see maybe in Adam and Eve, or we see in the way Paul talks about marriage later on in the New Testament, or the way God has called us to treat one another and be in marriage and make a covenant with one person for life. And so, I don't know, this marriage is, you know, it's polygamy and it's jealousy and there's all kinds of infighting. So you have these 11 brothers who basically hate now Joseph and it transitions now from Jacob to Joseph. Joseph kind of gets the dreams. God skips over all the other brothers and starts to bless Joseph in this situation. Now Joseph's story is about Joseph, but it's not only about Joseph, it's actually also about Judah. Judah is one of the older brothers, and he's the one that, or the oldest brother, he's the one that decides he wants to sell Joseph into slavery. And then Joseph basically goes, and they lie to their father. They tell him that he's been killed by an animal. They bring his fancy jacket back, and it's got blood all over it. And they say to his dad, hey, I don't think we're going to find him. He's been dragged away by an animal. This is not a great situation. Um, and so Joseph basically gets these dreams, and then the brothers turn on him, and they sell him into slavery. Everywhere he goes, he does incredible. Everywhere he goes, he, he flourishes in jail, in, you know, in any situation he finds himself. Finally, he rises to be the second in command with Pharaoh, and he ends up saving the entire world from famine, the known world at the time from famine. His family comes down to visit him, and now it's been a long time since this brother had sold his brother into slavery, and so uh, Joseph decides to test his brothers and he gets to a point where his younger brother, Benjamin, who is his bro- the brother of the same mom, who's also loved and favored by his dad, he basically decides, okay, I'm going to test my brothers. I'm going to take Benjamin and see what they do. See if they would make the same mistake again that they made before. Right? Whether their they're, they're preferential treatment or whatever their jealousy will kick in or whether they'll do something. And it says he takes Benjamin and Judah stands up and says, no, take me instead. And Judah tries to sacrifice himself for his brother. This is Genesis chapter 44. This is Judah speaking. He says, So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whom, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, goes, and the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame before you my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And Judah basically tries to sacrifice himself for his brother. And in doing so, he, he basically breaks down Joseph's ruse. Joseph then weeps and makes up with his brothers, and everything is good because he was willing to sacrifice himself for his brother. In the beginning, he was willing to sell his brother into slavery. At the end, he was willing to sacrifice himself for his brothers. God's covenant now goes through Judah, right? Jesus and David were both called the Lion of Judah. The covenant goes through them on its way to Jesus, through David on its way to Jesus. And... So you see kind of the full picture of all those patriarchs in process as God is speaking to them and communicating with them, having a relationship with them. 
And Joseph, at the end of his life, responds to what has just happened with Judah and bringing the family together. His father dies, and he says, you, you intended this to harm me, but God intended this for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's Genesis 50. We find then that the nation of Israel, these 12 brothers, begin a nation that begins to outpace the Egyptians as far as having children and being blessed. And before long, a new pharaoh comes into the picture and he starts to worry, hey, if they continue to grow and if they continue, they're just going to overtake us and then we're going to have a problem on our hands. And so he enslaves all of these people. And God, one of the most beautiful pictures of God's mercy, it says that his people cried out to him and he heard their cries he, he mercifully decided to intervene. He brings Moses into the picture. He frees the uh, Israelites from captivity in Egypt by basically crushing Pharaoh's spirit, by bringing plagues upon uh, Egypt until they release Israel and they give them all of their possessions, all of their gold on the way out the door. They walk away. They see uh, Egypt's army crushed. They spend 40 years in the desert getting ready to go into the promised land. And when the, the leadership transitions from Moses to Joshua, that's where we find ourselves starting here. How's that? I just gave you all of it. I didn't, I didn't pull any of it back. I want you to know, too, that the gospel is clearly seen in every one of these stories. Before the gospel exists, before we know anything about Jesus or understand God's plan, you see pictures, vignettes, some, all this pointing to the person of Christ. God tells Eve, you will crush the head of your enemy, and he spills the blood of animals when he makes clothes to cover their shame and sin. A picture of the gospel that was to come. In Noah, judgment of sin comes with a narrow way of redemption through a door on a boat to avoid the coming judgment. Kind of sounds like when Jesus says, hey, it's a narrow way that will save you. Get off of the road that leads to destruction and find the narrow way. Right? Abraham is obedient to be ready to give up his son and spill his blood. And in Hebrews, it says, Abraham reasoned. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In that picture, Abraham says, I will sacrifice my son because God has told me the line will go through him and if I sacrifice him, that means he's coming back. It's a picture of exactly what we would see with Jesus carrying the wood up the hill to his own sacrifice. His dad preparing to give up his son and then God sparing both of them and bringing redemption through that situation. Isaac was faithful to his father's wishes, willingly carried the wood to his own sacrifice up the hill, trusted his father, um, and was saved because God provided an alternative sacrifice to him. Jacob wrestled with God until he was blessed by God and became the father of many nations. Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers, stayed faithful in every situation he found himself in, represented God in hardship, and eventually saw God's plan of redemption to its completion. Judah escaped his past of sin, selling his own brother into slavery, among other awful acts, by coming full circle, ready to trade his life for his brother and father. David and Jesus would one day be in his lineage. The entire world 
would be blessed by the Lion of Judah. Moses would overcome his great sin by giving himself to God, giving to a God who would supernaturally bring his people out of slavery, freedom from the chains of slavery brought out by the blood of a sinless land during the Passover. The theme we see through all this is that sin messes everything up, sin is paid for, often with blood, and there is redemption. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You might be thinking you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading all these stories about people who lived thousands of years ago, but what you're actually reading is vignettes and pictures of who Christ is and what this whole thing is about. All of this points to Jesus. All of this points to God's care for, his love for his creation, and his redemption that he offers to those of us who find ourselves stuck in our own sin. That good news is throughout all of these, just sort of intertwined throughout all these stories, and leads us to this idea that Jesus was the ultimate plan of what God was doing. And so when Joshua takes over from Moses, he's taking over from a rock star. He's taking over from a guy who followed God exactly and led the people out of captivity and stood up to Pharaoh and defeated Egypt and has now been led through the desert by a pillar of fire and a pillar, a cloud of smoke. And has, there's been magic bread on the ground every single day when they wake up to feed them. And they've kind of survived all this. But at some point, God said to Moses' generation, none of you, you're all going to be punished for the sin that you have. None of you are going into the promised land. And so he wanders them around for 40 years in the desert while they prepare to go into the promised land. And when we find Joshua picking up the pieces here, Joshua is from a different generation that now gets to see the fruit of what God has been doing. And I I just thought about this all week, man. I just thought about this all week. I don't want to be part of Moses' generation. I don't want to work and work and have God have to basically show me for 40 years what needs to be rooted out of my life and not get to see the fruit of what he's doing because of my own sin, and then for him to hand the reins off to another generation of people who will actually honor him. Right before the situation where Joshua takes over, they go to scout the land out, and they send 12 spies into the interior of Canaan to go and take a look at what's going on, and all of them come back, and they, they give a report that, hey, there are, there's some giants in there, man. Like, this ain't good. We should probably turn around. Like, hey, where we live in ain't so bad. Ten, ten of the 12... People said, we, we probably shouldn't go in. This is not a great thing. I don't know. They, they're still weak in their faith. They've been led around by God. They've been fed by God. They've been cared for by God. They were, they were broken out of slavery by God. And now they're, they're looking into the promised land saying, we don't know. We don't know about God right now. But not two people, not Caleb and not Joshua. And Joshua's taking over here. And what we're going to see here with Joshua is insane. It's awesome. It's like he knows what it's going to take to lead. And he's coming out of this situation where he's basically replacing the guy. This is like the guy after the guy, right? You don't ever want to be the guy who replaces the guy. Now, I, I know this is like a, again, I'll, I'll shed some light on my own idols. Um, you know, I think the Dolphins had like eight quarterbacks after Dan Marino that were all terrible. You know why? Nobody wanted that job. Nobody wanted to replace that guy. Like, there's plenty of situations where, like, somebody's done something awesome and you don't want to be the next person because you have to take on all of what they were doing and you have to somehow do better than... That's impossible in certain situations. You want to take on, 
you want to be the next CEO at a company that's failing, right? You want to be the guy who rescues the organization from somebody who messed things up, okay? That's not what's going on here. Joshua's taking over from Moses. This is tough. So here's what it says, Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to motor, so get ready. After the death of, not that I haven't been motoring already this time. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? And so he basically, this is God now speaking to Israel through Joshua and basically telling him, hey, bud, I got your back. And I want you to know the theme here is that we cannot do anything without God's movement. When we decide to go into the promised land and take it for ourselves, we fail. When God leads us into the promised land and says, go take it, we succeed. That's what's going on here. And Joshua has seen enough leadership, enough of Moses' life, enough with the Israelites to know that he cannot get out in front of God. God has to go first. And God's going to continue to show this to him through the whole, the whole relationship. But he knows that he cannot do anything without God's movement. We get in trouble when we get out in front of God and try to make God's promises happen. It is sometimes frustrating to wait on what God is doing and to let it sort of load, like let it load. It's really, you know, one of those things I think all of us are frustrated with, with watching. It's why we continue to cut back on, like just think about like who created the microwave, right? Like I was just thinking about this the other day, like you can cook Pop-Tarts. There's directions on the box for Pop-Tarts that you can cook them in the microwave. Why? Do you know how long it takes to cook a Pop-Tart in the toaster? It's like 20 seconds. Like, it really doesn't take very long. And what is it in the microwave? It's like four seconds. Do you need to really save yourself 16 seconds? Like, we don't, we don't want to wait for anything. There's nothing in our lives where we're comfortable waiting for something to, to come. And God does this to us all the time. He says, hey, when it's my time, then it's my time. And he's telling Joshua, you don't have to wait anymore. I, what he was doing in this situation, which is kind of sad, and well, another reason why you don't want to be part of a Moses generation exactly, is he was waiting for all the people that he cursed and said, you could not go into the promised land, to die off. They're all gone now. And here comes Joshua now, going to take the remnant, the people who were going to lead God's people into the promised land, and he's going to go ahead and do it. And God says, now is the time. Let's get going. You don't have to wait any longer. But we know, and Joshua knew, we can do nothing without God's movement. Joshua 1.6, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. I feel like every vacation Bible school is based on this, right? How many songs have you learned about be strong and courageous? Be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not... No, just me, all right. Some of you guys need to volunteer at VBS, that's all I'm saying about that. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Awesome. Put it on a pillow, stick it in your living room. Put it on a bumper sticker, stick it on your, your car. Right? Make a t-shirt out of it. Wake up every morning and look into the mirror and say, 
you know, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Just, you know, like just, you, I'm going to take this and I'm going to do it. That's what, that's what God's telling Joshua to do, right? Just take it and do it. Just go for it. Just be strong and courageous. Now, if I put strength and courage in the middle of the room and said, take as much as you want, I think all of us need this. All of us have fears. All of us are afraid of man, afraid of culture, afraid of sharing our faith, afraid of talking about our faith, afraid of all kinds of things, anxieties about all kinds of things in our world, and we would love to have some strength and some courage. So go ahead, just take it. That would be one way to apply scripture, and that would be a terrible thing for me to teach you. Just do it. Go ahead, do it. If you've ever been in a spiral of anxiety, you know there is no just, just do it. There is no just change the way you think about it. There is no just grab hold of this and, and put it into practice. Did you know that God promised you to, that you would have strength and courage, and so let's just do it like Joshua? No, this is rooted in something. There's, this comes from somewhere. So, so take a look, right? So be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn t- from it from to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on, on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Strength and courage come from a relationship with God and his word. It is not just something that we apply by sheer force of will. I cannot tell you how often this gets talked about as if you should just grab hold of this and be it. That's not how it works. It comes out of a relationship with God and his word. His word transforms us. His relationship, his presence transforms us. And then we find strength and courage in places where we never knew we could have strength and courage because we've been built up in a relationship with God. That's where it comes from. If you want to apply this famous verse from Joshua, it is not by sheer force of will that you will just decide to be strong and courageous. It will come from your intimate relationship with God and his word and allowing him to transform you. Look what he says. He says, obey scripture. He says, meditate on scripture. Meditation we often think of as emptying our mind In this idea of what to do with meditation, it's to fill yourself with God's word. To fill, like empty out so you can fill your mind with God's word. Spend time with God. Allow his presence to work on you and to change you. We can see strength and courage in our lives when we are obeying and meditating and spending time and allowing God to transform us through those those things. Those are the things that bring about the strength and courage that we need And it's what Joshua begins to do here. He goes to God and says, I'm going to do it your way. You show me what to do. I'm following you. I'm going to keep you in front of me. I'm going to allow your presence to change me. I'm going to be changed through your word and through your presence. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people. Picking it up with uh, verse 10. Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is going to give you. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after, after he said, The Lord your God will, be, will give you rest and give you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over in order to help your fellow Israelites. 
You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After all, you may go back and occupy your land, which Moses, servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And who, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And the last one here is just, it's, it's real simple. I have here, God is not looking for the successful, but he's looking for the faithfully obedient. For your bingo card, I just took a drink. So, Oftentimes when God commands us to do something and we need the strength and courage to do it, what we actually do is we kick it, we kick it down the road and we decide not to do it. So we say, you know, I know God's calling me to do this. I know he's making it very clear to me this is what I should do. But I'll have more prayer about this. I'll talk to some more people about it. I'll, I'll kick it down the road. I'll have a meeting about it in a month. I'm not sure what I should do here, but I, I, you know, I know what God's calling me to do, and I'm just going to put it off. Joshua doesn't put it off. He says, all right, cool. Three days from now, we're going over the river. Get everybody ready. He goes to the tribes that have already received all their land and know exactly where they're going to live. They're all going to be on the one side of the river. The rest of the Jews are going to be on the other side of the river. And he basically says to them, hey, I know you guys are settling in on your spot, but you're coming with us because we're going over to take the entire land that God's giving to us. And he does it in three days. I think we mess this up. We need to be obedient. <laughs> I've heard multiple pastors give this illustration, and I love it. So here it is. I think what we do oftentimes, it's, it's kind of like if I were to go to, uh, not my children, because my children are amazing, and they would definitely follow their dad's. Uh. Oh my <laughs> but let's just say you said to your uh, disobedient child, um, which I don't know anything about, um, you said to your, your disobedient child, hey, I want you to clean your room today, Right? And you went to work, and then you came home and said, I want it done by the time I come home. You come home, and you say to your child, hey, did you, did you clean your, your room? And your child comes back and says, listen, just got to tell you, made a lot of progress today. Got everybody together, and we did an in-depth study on how to clean a room. We looked up the Hebrew meaning of clean, and the Greek meaning of room. And what we found, which you'll, be, you'll kind of be blown away by this, just, so just hang in there, is all this truth. It's amazing, right? Uh, we even, before we finished, we prayed over one another, we laid hands on each other, and we asked for God to give a clean room to each of us. Uh, God, we just, or <laughs> dad? <laughs> nope. Uh, imperfect dads for imperfect uh, church, uh, we, we just want you to know we, we made a lot of progress today towards, towards getting our rooms cleaned. Did a lot of study, did a lot of prayer, and I think we're ready. One of these days, we might actually do something. I, I just think there's a lot of Christians who are like in a holding pattern of what God has called them to do, and they know what it is. Oftentimes, I will get up and talk about baptism, and people will say, no, 
I'm not ready for that. I can't do that. And God's calling you. He's telling you right now, if you're a believer in Jesus and you're not baptized, God is saying, be baptized. That's a command from Jesus himself, and there's really not any exception to it. Those of you who are hanging, like still dragging along with being generous with your finances, God is saying, go give away what I've given to you. Go find a way to be generous with what I've given to you. Treat it like it's mine. Steward it. Be in charge of it. Nothing. We, we just, oh, I, I don't know, I should, maybe I should think about this a little longer or have some more conversation. There are times when God is telling you very clearly, hey, I want you to give up this sin. I want you to walk away from this pattern. I want you to serve and use your gifts somewhere. There's something that God's calling you to do, and he's being very clear about what his expectations are and what he wants out of you. And by the way, we think that this is for God, and oftentimes this is for us. God is preparing us to go into the land that he wants to take us in, but we would rather wander the desert in disobedience for 40 years than take hold of what God has, has given us. I, I don't want to be part of Moses' generation. I want to be part of Joshua's generation. I want to be so stinking obedient to what God has called me to do that I get to see the fruit of the kingdom come to fruition in the world around me. That's what, that's what God is calling for you to do as well. And you know exactly where it is that you're still being disobedient and talking about getting involved in what God is doing and still not doing it. For Joshua, three days, we're going. We're going to listen to God. We're going to follow God. We're going to do exactly what God says. And that is exactly what the, the nation of Israel needs to be led into the promised land that God has called them into. All right, I'm going to pick up the story again next week, and it's going to be interesting. It's family serve Sunday next week. Am I right about that? And uh, we're going to talk about Rahab. So you're going to get to watch me dance around landmines <laughs> while we talk about the faith of Rahab. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are clear about what you want from us and call us to be obedient. And thank you that you are the one who reached out and started relationships with all of these faithful people, these people who didn't see always what it is you were doing to the end, but welcomed it from afar as obedient people who were following you. God, would we be those people too? Would we be part of the generation that goes and does the thing instead of talks more about the thing? And would we be obedient in ways that we didn't think we could be because we have followed what you've called us to do and we've gotten serious about our faith with you? And God, would you continue to meet us even in our imperfection, even in our sin, even when we do the wrong thing, even when we again fall down and again fight this stuff, God, would you just continue to show us what it looks like to be that merciful God who chases after us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you, would you stand? I want to send you with a blessing. This is from Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. I pray, church, that you would be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Amen and amen and amen.